I recognize a couple of you guys from conference. Oh, I recognize people from my church in the back. But I recognize a couple of you from conference. Um, it's so good to see you guys. Thank you for coming out. I'm really excited and nervous to be here. Um, like Ashley mentioned, my name is Stacy. I'm from CSIC for Church. Um, first disclaimer, I am in no way a professional speaker. This is my first time um, actually speaking at an event like this. So I ask for your patience and your grace um, for if I uh, sound confusing or I don't make sense or anything like that. I ask for your grace and your forgiveness. Um, and also, um, if I happen to ramble and I don't make sense, uh, feel free to come up to me afterwards to explain anything that maybe didn't um, like make sense or it was like, oh, I didn't get what you meant by that. Can you just explain that to me? I'm more than happy to um, talk to you about it. Um, but I'm excited to be here. Um, I only really have one goal of being here. Obviously, the topic is evangelism. Um, but what I hope to um, share with you through this message is um, more than giving answers through the message, I actually hope that I leave you with more questions about um, who God is, who God is to you, um, what role does evangelism play in your life, and um, uh, just leaving you thinking more about God and the truth of God and who he is. So I hope you leave with more questions than answers, and we'll take some time to uh, dive into those questions a little bit more in the second session. But for now, we're going to talk about evangelism. And before that, I want to thank Ashley and Krista for reaching out to me to begin with to come here and speak, and also Achen for giving me the opportunity to be here, and also God for giving me this opportunity. Um, I honestly would not be here without him. I wouldn't be here um, if he hadn't led me to this moment. And um, with that, I'm just going to uh, start off with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for gathering us here in this church, God, to dive into the, your word and learn more about who you are, Father God, and who we are in you, God, what our purpose is in this life and coming to know you and spreading that message. God, we pray that more than anything, we leave here, God, with a, a fuller sense, a fuller picture of who you are, Father God. We pray that you unveil your face before us, that we leave here a people changed, Father God, ready to go out and spread the message that you have spoken to us, God. I pray that we leave here filled with your love, filled with your mercy, filled with your grace, God. I pray that your spirit speaks through me. I pray that it's not my words, it's not what I want to say, God, but it's what you want to say to every person sitting in this room, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So evangelism. What do you guys think of when you hear the word evangelism? And feel free to shout it out. Anything? You have no idea at all. Huh? You don't know. Okay, that's okay. That's completely okay. I feel like, I think it's like one of those words where you just like hear it a lot, so you think you know what it is, but then when you actually get asked like, oh, what does that word mean? You're like, um, I don't know how to talk about it actually. It's actually how I felt when I first saw the topic as well. I was like, yeah, wait, what exactly is evangelism? So we'll start out with the dictionary.com definition. Dictionary.com says, evangelism is the spreading of the Christian gospel by public preaching 
or personal witness. So automatically, the things that I associate evangelism with is like speakers and conferences, right? Missionaries who go out into countries to speak the gospel message. Basically, evangelism, you associate uh, people who speak the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to, um, to the world. Uh, I automatically think of people like Billy Graham, who would sell out stadiums and arenas, um, people who would come and flock to him to hear what he had to say about Jesus, the good news that he had to preach. And I used to think that when I first uh, grew up, I, I mean, I grew up in the church, and I used to think that there were, like, levels of Christianity, right? Like, it was like you had, like, the really, really good Christians who, like, lived holy lives, and, like, these were the people who were called to evangelism to go out and uh, spread the, the word of God. But is that what the Bible says about evangelism? And we're actually, the, the verse for today is 1 Peter 3.15, but we're, we're not going to look at that until much later. Before we get there, we're actually going to turn to Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20. Um, and you could feel free to pull out your Bible or your phone if you want to follow along, but also if you just want to listen, that's completely okay too. But this is sometimes the go-to verse when we talk about evangelism, right? It's the Great Commission. It's what Jesus commissions the disciples before he ascends into heaven. Um, it says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So this is the command that's given to the disciples before Jesus ascends into heaven. He says, everything that I've taught you, everything I have shown you, go out to the world and um, preach it to them, show it to them, spread the truth that I have showed you. And so now you might be thinking, well, that doesn't apply to me, right? I mean, these are the disciples. These are the people who walked and talked with Jesus, who witnessed uh, the things that he did, the wit uh, witnessed his life, his resurrection. Um, surely these were extraordinary men who then later on went and established the church, wrote the letters and books of the Bible. Clearly, or I mean, I don't think I'm called to do that, right? Like, how could I ever compare myself to the disciples or even people like Billy Graham who are... Um, you know, on these uh, big arenas and calling all these people to Christ. Am I, how do I fall in in, the, in that category? But these men and women from the disciples, the early disciples that walked with Christ to the evangelists of today are people who have undergone a transformation that then prepare and send them out to speak the gospel. They weren't always these extraordinary people. And what do I mean by that? So take Peter, for example, and I'm going to be uh, flipping to, between two books right now, Matthew and Acts. So in Matthew 4, verses 18 to 20 is where we first meet Peter, right? He's just a fisherman, just minding his own business, doing what he's been doing all his life, right? And then in verse 18, um, it says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. So before Jesus calls them, right, Peter and his brother, they're just ordinary fishermen. You can, also, you can almost imagine, like, what their life looked like. I mean, obviously, I don't know. But you can almost imagine what their life looked like before Jesus, right? You wake up, go to the lake, get some fish, 
cook it, go to sleep. Wake up, get some fish, cook it, go to sleep, right? That's their life. Just ordinary two men going about their everyday life, right? And then in comes Jesus, and he comes, and he says, come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets, and they followed him. Flash forward now to Acts 4, where Peter and John are brought before the Jewish leaders and in, when the book of Acts, this is after the life, the death, the resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Um, now the apostles are going out and preaching the word, the gospel. And in, specifically in Acts 4, um, Peter and John are brought before the Jewish leaders to give an explanation for the healing of a lame man. And a quick summary of the story, uh, Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray. And outside the temple was a man who sat outside the gate. Um, begging for money. He's been lame all his life, um, so the people of the temple know him. And Peter and John walk by him, and he asks for money. And Peter goes, Peter says, silver or gold I don't have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. And this causes a huge stir because a man gets healed. He's not only walking, he's now dancing and rejoicing. And the people are stunned because this is the man they've been seeing their whole life sitting outside the gate, not being able to walk, all of a sudden walking. And this causes a huge stir, and this catches the attention of the Jewish leaders who are against the Christian movement. And so they arrest John and Peter, and they ask them, in whose name or in what power did you heal this man? And then verse 8, it says that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, goes on to preach the gospel message. And then verse 13, it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. And so the first thing I want to say, and it's kind of a long point, but hopefully it'll make more sense as we go on. Um, evangelists are not pre-qualified, extraordinary, holy men. Evangelists are ordinary, unqualified people who, after encountering Jesus, God qualifies to do and speak extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. I'm going to say that again because that was a lot. Um, evangelists are not pre-qualified, extraordinary men. Evangelists are ordinary, unqualified people who, after encountering Jesus and following him, God qualifies to do and speak extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. Another example is Paul. He was the lead persecutor of the early church, right? Um, Stephen uh, is, is the first martyr uh, of Christianity, and uh, Saul is actually the one who approves his killing, right? So if there's anyone who's unqualified to speak the gospel message, it's the one person who tried to end the church, Yet Paul ends up writing 13 out of the 21 letters that are found in the New Testament, one of them being Romans, and Romans is considered like the book of books when it comes to um, the preaching of the gospel message. So clearly these men don't, at the outset, don't have qualifications to be messengers of the gospel, but the command given by Christ to go out and make disciples sends them out. What happens in between their ordinary lives that they were living and that command that Jesus gives them to go make um, disciples. What happens to these men that they become bold speakers of the gospel, that they become ambassadors of Christ? What made them stay faithful to the call? And what's so special about this message that they give up their whole lives um, to make sure that the message spreads to establish the church? 
because after all, it is through their faithful evangelism and the first disciples that created more disciples over generations and generations that we now sit here in this church, right? Um, and as followers of Christ, the mandate um, to make more disciples is also on us. Uh, the disciples were taught by Jesus to go out and make disciples, and we, as the disciples of Christ, are also taught and commanded by Christ to go out and make disciples. So the mandate to evangelize and create more disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit is on every follower of Christ. But the question remains, why? Why do I have to be a Christian and also an evangelist? Is it two different things? Is it the same thing? Can't I just go to church every Sunday? do my best outside of church to follow the law and the commandments, tithe, and just be on my way? Why do I have to talk about it? And I tend to watch a lot of Christian speakers and <coughs> um, worship and stuff like that on YouTube. And every once in a while, I'll scroll down and I'll read the comments. And sometimes uh, some people will comment things like, you know, why can't you Christians just keep your faith to yourselves? Why are you so adamant on getting others to believe as well? And in the culture and society we live in today, it's actually kind of seen as offensive to try and convince someone of what you believe. You know, some of the questions that come up when you try to do that is, uh, how can you say your belief is superior to other religions? How can you say um, that, you know, you, you have the truth and no one else has the truth? Do you think you're better than other people um, of other religions or of no religion? You know, it's so hateful and arrogant of you to say that you have the truth and no one else does, no one else does. And these are actually arguments that I have heard or rebuttals I have heard when I try to share my faith to people. And so as soon as you try to make an exclusive truth claim about God and about religion, you're all of a sudden seen as arrogant, offensive, unloving, and un unaccepting. So this leaves us in a tough spot, right? You have this command to, evan to do evangelism, and then you have this like society and culture that's not really approving of it. And honestly, those are not the kind of conversations we willingly want to walk into, right? And so we ask, is it worth it? Do I have to go and do this? Can't I just, like, believe what I believe and they believe what they believe? We all live one happy family, right? Um, and sometimes we fall into that process, that thought process of, like, all, re all roads lead to God anyway, right? All roads lead to Jesus, so what's the point? Or is there even a God to begin with? And... But as Christians, we can't ignore the fact that Jesus has commanded us to go and make more disciples, that he has commanded us to go and preach this good news, right? When he came and he walked on the earth, he proclaimed this good news of a new kingdom that was coming, right, of salvation. And he says, go out and proclaim this message as well. It can't be ignored. He said it, right? And this is what the disciples said that he said as well. And it's confusing. We, we, you start to think, well, what's so great about this message that it has to be spread across the world, that people need to hear about it? The word gospel is thrown around so much that do we even really even know what the gospel is? What does it mean? What exactly is it? The gospel translated um, actually gets translated to good news, right? Good news. So, okay, that's a, that's a good start. It makes a little bit of sense because, I mean, today, if we have good news, what is the first platform that you're most likely to share it on? Instagram, right? Like, I mean, if you Instagram, you know. If you know, you know, right? Like, if as soon as you graduate college or you get married or you get engaged, 
the first thing you do is you go post it. It could be Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. But you feel this, um, you feel this need to share, right? If not through social media, then through your, then to your friends, text, phone call, pictures, whatever. When you have good news, you want to share it, and especially if it's news that. Um, benefit other people as well, you're going to share it to the people that are around you. Like just recently, right, I think on our CSI group me, one of uh, the people actually kindly shared uh, news of free burgers at Shake Shack. Like how nice of him to do that. Good news, right? And he went and he shared it. So good news, we share it. That's just what we do. So what is the good news? What is the gospel? Um, what's so good about this gospel message that it must be shared, that the world needs to hear it, that it's relevant to everybody and not just people who claim to be Christians. What is it that transformed Paul, the persecutor, and Peter, the ordinary fisherman, who, if you remember, initially denied knowing Jesus, right, when he was asked about it, um, when Jesus was arrested, he denied him three times. What is it that ultimately transforms these people to not only boldly proclaim the gospel, but ultimately uh, they end up losing their lives for it. And so to understand that, to understand um, how, what the gospel message is, we need to go way back before the world began to understand the story God um, has been writing and is continuing to write today, um, that he's been writing through the Old Testament, through the gospels, through Jesus, the disciples, and now through us. And so we're going to actually dive into uh, the story of the Bible, or sometimes it's referred to the gospel story, and it's broken down into four chapters. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So first, creation. Genesis 1 starts out with, in the beginning, God, right? I'm not going to go through the rest, just in the beginning, God. So what does that say? In the beginning, God. He was always there. He existed. He wasn't created. He wasn't formed. He was always there. And when I say God, who, do, who am I talking about, right? The Christian God, the God that we believe, is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one being, three in person. And it's kind of hard to understand, um, but what I mean by being, being is what you are, and person is who you are. So us as human beings, we're one being. We are human beings. That is what we are. And we are also one person or personality. I'm Stacy. Krista is Krista. We're both human beings, but we're both each one person. God, however, is one being, but three in person. And that's hard to wrap our minds around because there is no one like God. It's hard for us to understand because there's nothing in this earth that exists like God, right? And that's what makes God, God. It is us who try to bring God down to our level of understanding that then hinders us from seeing who he is fully, right? Just because we're one and we're one being doesn't mean that God can't be three in one. And that is who he is. That is who he has revealed himself to be, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God has always existed in his triune nature, right, the Trinity, He's always existed in relationship with one another. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has always existed in relationship with one another, in community with one another, in perfect love with one another. And that is why we don't just call God the God of love. We say God himself in his very nature is love. God in himself 
He is the very essence of love, like the purest form of love. And the product and the outpouring of that perfect love is creation in all its beauty and grandeur, simplicity and complexity, its balance and laws, and then eventually as human beings. We are the product of God's love. Um, and us, we're actually unique in that God created us, human beings, in his image to share in that perfect love. We are designed in the image of God to then mirror the love of God and live in loving relationship with him and with creation, just like God has always existed. God in his grace creates us to share in and experience that perfect, breathtaking love. Children of God created in his image. Through that, we receive our identity. Created to live in loving relationship with God and creation, doing good works, harnessing the potential within creation to bring about more beauty, we receive our purpose. In creation, um, in God, we receive our identity and we receive our purpose. And God gives us everything to work with, everything we need to be successful in carrying out our purpose. And he also gives us commandments so that we do it um, successfully um, and to the fullest of our capacity, right? And the commandment that he gives us is in Genesis, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. He gives them essentially every tree to eat from, especially there's a tree of life, and there's this tree um, of evil, um, the knowledge of good and evil. And he says you can, you can eat from any of these trees. You essentially have the choice between life and the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, stay away from there because that leads to death. But man, right? Adam and Eve choose the tree of knowledge and evil. They choose knowledge and evil, the knowledge of good and evil over life. Man chooses himself over God. Man chooses his own purpose over the purpose that God has created him for. And so what makes that first sin a sin is not that they disobeyed God in eating that apple. Yeah, eating the apple was a sin, but the sin is actually the heart that went into, the heart that went into it which was to put their desire, their purpose, above that of God's. And so through that, man rejects God. And God, because he created us to be people of free will, gives us over to our sinful desire to reject God and his purpose for us. Heaven and earth separate, man and God separate. In rejecting God, we reject the image in which we are created, and we lose our identity. In rejecting God, we lose our purpose for which we were made by him, we lose our purpose, our meaning in life. This is known as the fall. And so we also lose our source, our example of perfect love. And so as a result, we become a lost people, looking for meaning, looking for purpose, looking for identity. And isn't that the cry of our generation today? Who am I? Am I my job? Am I my talents? Am I my social status? Am I my sexuality? Am I my actions? Am I my sins? Am I no one? Am I just the result of a random set of events that happened to create the perfect earth and environment for me to exist? Who am I? And in losing our source of love, our perfect example of love, we become, as Romans 1 verse 29 puts it, filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. 
They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. And so as his lost people, we become selfish, sinful, and prideful, constantly on the lookout for something to fulfill us, complete us, but always ending up not having enough. We, we can chase after money and relationships, fame and material things, um, and look for fulfillment in all those things. But at the end, we end up empty-handed. I mean, the story of the celebrity that makes it right has everything that people in the world could want, money, fame, success, girls, guys, whatever. Um, and they reach that top or whatever we think is the top. And so many of them turn around and say, it wasn't as great as I thought it would be. Um, Tom Brady does like, a, there's a famous interview of Tom Brady um, basically sitting there and saying there must be more. And so in all this chaos and all this turmoil, is there hope, right? Um, in, our, in our pursuit of trying to find who we are and trying to fulfill our desires, we actually leave a trail of chaos behind us. I mean, look at the world that we live in today, right? How else can we define it but chaos filled with famines and poverty, um, because of uh, us not taking care of the earth, we have stronger hurricanes. We have fires that are blazing out of control. Uh, because of our sinful and prideful desires, we have corruption. We have human trafficking, cheating, lying, racial injustice, discrimination, hate, selfishness. Um, recently, the rates of depression, loneliness, anxiety, hopelessness skyrocketing. Everywhere you look, it's chaos. Um, this earth that we were created to take care of, um, we end up destroying it. And we are left alone thinking, what's the point? Why are we here? And we look at the world and we think, is there a way to salvage this? Is there a way to save where it is we're inevitably heading? Um, and that's where Jesus comes in. And this is redemption. Jesus, son of God, one of the Trinity, God himself comes into the world to offer a way back to God, a way back to our identity, a way back to our purpose, a way back to our creator, our source of love, and all that is good. He comes to earth talking about a new kingdom that he's going to bring in where there's no more darkness, where there's no more poverty, no more sickness, um, no more hate, just love and peace and harmony and a right relationship with God once again, living in the presence of God once again. But how can this separation between humanity and God be united? Who ends up taking the blame? Who ends up taking, um, who ends up paying the price for all the chaos that has been caused in the world, right? And because God is a God that is committed to justice, perfect justice, someone must pay the price for all the sin that is in the world, even the sin that we commit, right? We are also agents of chaos that somehow add to the total chaos in the world. We are not perfect. And so Jesus empties himself of his glory, comes down into the dirt, becomes human, lives the life we were supposed to live, completely righteous, perfect, um, sinless, and then takes on the punishment of our, um, of our sins. He willingly takes on all the wrongs that we have done. He takes on the darkness of this world, and he puts it on his back, and he dies on the cross. He lives the life we were supposed to live, and he dies the death that we were supposed to die. 
He faces the wrath of God for our sins and transgressions. He bears our punishment and our burdens. He takes it to the cross, and it dies there with him. And through that, we are forgiven, we are pardoned. Through him, we are given a way back to God, into the holy presence of God, made perfectly clean because all the sins and the dirt that once covered us has now died on the cross with Christ. And why? Why would God do such a thing? Why didn't he just end it all and just start over again, right? And we go to probably one of the most quoted verses, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's love for us sends down his one and only son to save us. God loves us so much that he rescues us from his judgment, his wrath that we rightly deserve for being the agents of chaos that we are. Um, And he takes it upon himself and he frees us. And not only that, we also receive the merits and the reward of Jesus' perfect sinless life. His righteousness that it is credited to him now becomes ours. We are no longer made righteous through obeying the law. We don't work to become righteous anymore. We don't obey laws to become righteous anymore. Our righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. It is credited to us as righteousness. When God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And so through Jesus, we receive a perfect salvation, the forgiveness of sin and the righteousness of God. Ephesians 2 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. What's so great about the love of God is that he loved us before we were made righteous. He loved us in our sin. He loved us in our, in our dirt. He loved us in our brokenness. He loved us before the cross, and he's loved us through the cross and through Jesus Christ. And so all things that are separated from God now through Jesus has been united with God. Death doesn't have the final word over us anymore. Rather, Jesus Christ conquers death and its power by rising from the grave that third day. He rises with new life and he offers that new life to all those who give their life to him that we may enter into the new kingdom he will usher in when he comes again. That is new creation. Romans 8 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. And who the Son sets free, who Jesus sets free, is free indeed. Through Jesus, we are reconciled to God. We once again receive our our identity. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we receive our identity once again. And we once again receive our purpose, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. It's the first and greatest commandment, and the one after is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that all of the law and the prophets 
hang on these two commandments. Every single one of the laws that are given to us are fulfilled in just those two commandments. Then Jesus rises and ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, and he is interceding for us, advocating for us, um, to once once again unite us with God. And he prepares for us a place in this new kingdom that he will usher in. And that's not all. Jesus doesn't just leave and leave us hanging. Now that we've made we've been made completely holy, we now actually actually become the temple for the presence of God. We receive the Holy Spirit who comes and lives in us. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to who God is and transforms us and our hearts to help us see our identity in Christ, our purpose in Christ, and and the Holy Spirit helps us become all that we're created to be. So we receive forgiveness We receive righteousness, and we receive a helper, an advocate in the Holy Spirit. John 14, 15 says, and Jesus is saying this, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. And so what is the good news? Through Jesus Christ, we become a new creation. Through Jesus Christ, we give up our old lives that was marked with being lost, that was marked with sin, that was marked with um, wanting to fulfill every, every fleshly desire, every worldly desire, chasing after the things of the world for fulfillment, only to come up empty-handed, headed towards death, headed towards the end of this world. The good news is Jesus says, that, that is not the end. I have brought a way to the new kingdom that I'm bringing in. I have brought a way back to God, where in God you will find who you are, You will find your purpose, why it is you're here. Um, And this is good news, especially in this dark, hopeless world we live today, right? We look around and we see all the suffering and all the trials, and we look and we think, what is the point of it all? Jesus gives us hope in that darkness. God has saved us. Um, God has saved us and the world from corruption and decay and ultimately death and has opened the way for you and I to be saved, for you and I to once again become children of God. I'm going to end this part with Romans 8. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. And so through the help of the Holy Spirit, we receive the help to live new lives in line with God's commandments, but we no longer follow those commandments to be righteous and, you know, religious or whatever. We do it because we realize that God gave us those commandments to actually live to the fullest of life, right? God created this world, um, and so who else do we look to um, when trying to figure out how to live in this world but to the creator, right? Creation will once again be restored to all its beauty, all its glory, and God will once again be reunited to his creation. And until that day, we have been given the task to be the messengers of this good news that Jesus is coming again, that we have been reconciled uh, to God um, to give this message to the people around us until he comes again. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 to 21 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, 
not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. God makes his appeal of reconciliation through us to the world. We are the messengers of that message. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so through the righteousness, we receive Christ, and through the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, we are now qualified and sent out by God um, to become ministers, evangelists of this message of reconciliation. And Christians are not offering a better way to salvation. We're not offering a better way of life. No, we're saying this is the truth, that the person of Jesus walked on this earth, that he lived this life, that he died and he rose again, and they were witnesses, and they went out and preached this good news, the things that they witnessed. And uh, salvation is through Jesus alone, no one else. That is what he preached. Jesus was not just a teacher or a rabbi who walked around, talked about how to live a good life. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He makes specific divine claims of his lordship that cannot be ignored. And so we move on to evangelism, right? Um, and this is just going to be a little bit, it's going to be quicker. I'm going to spend more time on this verse um, on that next session. But we look at now 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I'm going to break that verse into three parts. The first one is, but in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. Evangelism begins with a personal encounter with Jesus. I'm not here preaching things that merely have been told to me, um, that I've been taught growing up. I am here um, because I have had a personal encounter with Christ, where I have encountered his message of hope, his message of love, um, Christ himself, and I have come here now to share that message of hope and love with you. Um, in a personal encounter with Jesus, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to our sin and our need for salvation. And that Jesus Christ is that salvation. He is the Messiah. He is Lord. And the end result of that encounter with Christ is our declaration that Jesus, you are Lord. You are the Messiah. You are the only way to salvation. So evangelism um, begin, begins with our personal encounter with Christ. Uh, Matthew, uh, we see Peter's own personal encounter in Matthew 16. Uh, when Jesus uh, comes to the region of Caesarea, he asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Which is an interesting question, right? He's basically asking the disciples, like, what's the talk around town? What are people saying about me? Who are they saying I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus is like, okay, cool, but what do you say? Who do you say I am? And Peter answers, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. In Peter's walk with God, in his, in, in his encounters with Jesus, he has come to see that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And I think what Jesus is making clear here is it matters what you think of him. Who do you think Jesus is? Is he just a teacher? Who walked around? Was he just a rabbi? Was he just a really good religious leader? Or is he the son of the living God? Is he the Lord? 
And if he is, what does that mean for us and what does that mean for the world? Jesus replied to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So again, in a personal encounter with Christ, the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to who Jesus is and who we really are. And in response, we give our life to Christ to die on that cross with him and step into the new life ruled by the love, grace, and mercy of God. And in doing so, we revere Christ as Lord. Peter is transformed as he witnesses the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And through that, um, and through the Holy Spirit, he is emboldened to preach what it is he has witnessed. Paul has his personal encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. Um, and he was actually en route to persecute more Christians of the early church. But through his encounter, his eyes are also open to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the Messiah, the only way to salvation. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, um, he is transformed from being the persecutor of the church to one of the greatest leaders of the church. And, um, and like I said, what brings me here today is my own personal encounter story with Christ. Um, I, like most of you, grew up in the CSI church, right? So I grew up always believing in God. I don't think there was ever a point in my life where I didn't believe in God. Um, I grew up learning in Sunday school that Jesus Christ died for my sins, that he is my savior, and all those things. And I just kind of accepted it. I believed it because that's what I was raised up with, right? But I never really took a second to think about what that means. I kind of just accepted it and believed it. But at the same time, I felt like I was missing something because when I, when I would talk to Christians who would say things like, oh, I'm, I'm born again, I've, you know, I've encountered Christ, and, you know, I have this joy in my heart, I was like, you know, I'm a Christian too, but I don't really have that in my heart. Like, I, I don't talk about Jesus the way that they do. What do they have that's different from me? You know, I realized I grew up in the church, and I know all these things about God, but for some reason, it's not translating to my emotions or my feelings or, like, what it is I feel about God, right? And so I started to just do things out of, like, being religious. I thought being a good Christian, like I said before, uh, had to do with following the laws and going to church on Sundays and keeping to all those, like, rules, and that's what makes you a good Christian. And so I thought I was, like, one of the better Christians because, you know, I didn't go out, I didn't drink, I didn't do any of those things, and, you know, all those people did in high school, and I thought it was, like, I'm killing the game at Christianity. Like, it's, I'm good, right? Um, but then that gets kind of tiring. You try on your own to be this holy person and quite quickly realize that it, it doesn't happen because a little part of me wanted to explore that other side. And so I, when I went to college, I actually made the conscious decision to step away from God and to step away from the church um, because I wanted to see what the other side was about. And so <clears throat> I ended up being this person who so-called lived this holy life to actually living a completely opposite life in college. And I was still actually leading things within church because I thought, you know, maybe if I just dip my feet a little in church, like God won't hate me too much, so I can just do whatever I do in church, gain some points with God, and then I can leave church and go do whatever I want, and it'll be okay. But I do that for a while, um, and I think I hit about second year of undergrad, and I actually start to get really upset, and I start to get really, um, I start to feel really empty, you know? I thought, Freedom was what I wanted. I thought I wanted freedom to do whatever I wanted to do. Um, no one's asking me any questions. Um, no one's telling me what's wrong or right. I'm just doing what I want based on what I think is right and whatever is giving me pleasure and happiness. And I thought that would make me happy. But it actually ended up making me feel really empty. 
I realized that Friday nights ended up being my salvation, you know? And I would think to myself, like, is that all there is to life? Like, grinding throughout the week and then looking to, out, looking to like, going out on the Friday night? Like, is that all there is? And I remember thinking there must be more. And I thought about all those conferences and retreats and all those things that I went to. <coughs> and I remember, I remember there was always this um, invitation to um, ask Jesus to come into your heart. And I never really took those invitations because part of me was scared. I didn't really know what that meant. I thought, like, if I did that, I would have to, like, go become a nun or something. And I didn't want to do that. Um, and so, but I felt like that's what was missing. I hadn't asked Jesus into my heart. And maybe that's what separated me from all these other people who claim to be born-again Christians who love God and, you know, are living for his message. And, you know, like, maybe that's what's separating us. And I remember thinking, God, like, I just want my two lives because I felt like I was living one life in church and another life outside of church. And I remember thinking, God, I just want these two lives to unite. I want it to come together. So then I finally started to pray God, can you please unite my two lives? Jesus, can you please enter my heart? Can you show me what it is that I'm missing? And then about five months later, I think, um, and starting to pray that prayer, uh, my health starts to decline, and I'm not feeling too well. And basically, long story short, I end up getting diagnosed with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is cancer of your lymph nodes. Um, and I was really confused. I was like, okay, I got God, I asked you for more of you. I thought I was doing the right thing here. And you give me cancer? It doesn't really make sense. And I remember being really upset um, and not really knowing what, I, I remember distinctly, like, just sitting on the couch for a whole entire week, just not knowing what to do um, and just being like, oh, this sucks. Like, I'm probably, like, like I'm going to have to take a year off from school. And I had, a, like, a whole plan set out for my life, right? Like, you know, finish school by 25, get married by 27, have kids by 29, and this came and just ruined it all by one year. But still, it was like a dramatic thing for me, right? Um, and I had to actually sit down and grapple with the fact that I actually had no control over my life. And so through cancer, the first thing I think that God taught me was, you are not in control. You can sit there and you can plan, you can do all that you want, but at the end of the day, I decide the way your life plays out. And that was really hard for me, for, especially for someone who liked to plan these things out. Um, I had to choose to either be upset or to just surrender and see where God was going with this. And so I chose to just surrender. And I remember the day before my, like, official diagnosis and the day before, like, getting my treatment plan and all that stuff, I actually went on my knees and I just surrendered it to God, and I was like, I'm not going to be angry, I'm not going to do anything, I'm just going to allow you to work, and then the next day, once, you know, I got the treatment plan and all those things, I went back to my dorms, and I wasn't really reading the Bible and praying at the time, but I just decided to pull out my phone that day, just to read the Bible, uh, the, the verse of the day on the Bible app, and the verse of the day for that day was, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, and it goes on to say that the trials are actually meant to, to help you persevere. It's, help it's to help you mature your faith. It's not meant to hurt you. It's actually meant to grow you. And I heard it so loud and clear that day, and I truly believe it now, especially standing here, that it was God speaking to me saying, this is not meant to hurt you. This is meant to save you. This is meant to answer that prayer for your two lives to be united. And so through cancer, God got my attention. And I surrendered my life to him. 
Fast forward six months later, we have our winter retreat, um, which is a retreat that our youth does in the winter. Um, basically, for three days, we go out to the Poconos, and um, we spend some time in the Word. Um, and this one year, I believe it was 2016, the topic was children of God. And we were um, going through the passage of Galatians 4. Um, and there was just this verse about how because Jesus came, we're no longer bound to the law, but we have now become children of God. Um, and because we're children of God, we have the right to call him Abba, Father, right? Not just as God or just like Father, but like Abba, Father, almost like you would call your dad like Papa or Acha or like whatever you call him dearingly. You get to call him personally by that name. And how? Through Jesus. Here I was thinking that to come to God, I had to be this holy, moral person, um, and I couldn't approach him otherwise. And Jesus says, no, actually, I'm calling you in all your brokenness. I'm calling you in all your sin. I'm calling you here and now because I've taken care of that for you. I'm asking you to just come and to let me in. I want your heart. And I don't know how to explain that moment other than a supernatural moment where literally my eyes were opened to the weight of my sin and my brokenness. Like a phys I felt a physical burden on myself of the weight of the sin and brokenness on me and in the world. And I realized and I saw that Jesus was the only way, that the cross paid for all those things, and he is offering this new life, and all I have to do is give my life to him and to accept it. My life has not been the same ever since. And I'm not any, I'm not any perfect now. There's still very much things that I still struggle with um, that started in college till now, but I can say that there is a true joy and a hope I have found in Christ that I don't, I no longer look to the world uh, to fulfill me. I no, no longer look to money or fame or all these other things that the world is chasing after and saying, here, happiness is found here. I don't put hope in these things anymore because I now see that there's an end to all of those things, but there's an eternity waiting through Jesus, and that is where I have set my hope. And that is the message I have come here to speak to you. That is the hope that I have that I'm sharing with you um, and hope that you give Jesus Christ the chance to come into your heart and to allow him to show you, to have an encounter with you through the Spirit um, so that you may see who he is and what it is that he has done for you. And so um, the second part of that verse, um, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Um, it's important to understand that verse in the context of what's going on in First Peter. First Peter, um, that's a letter that Peter writes to Christians, um, basically an area where there's a lot of persecutions going on. And so that letter is basically Peter encouraging them to be like, hey, like I know what's going on around you. It's horrible right now. It's hard. You're going through a lot of suffering. But remember that our hope is not here in this world. It's in Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And he um, tells them, I urge you to live as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So the Holy Spirit, once he comes inside of you, um, he transforms you to live counterculturally, culturally. Even the way that you live in suffering looks very different from the way that um, people who don't have Christ endure suffering. And it's going to raise questions, right? People are going to look at you and say, what is it about these people that they always seem to have this light in them, this joy and hope in them? 
what is it that makes them stand out from the rest? Why do they not necessarily engage in all the other activities that the rest of the world seem to be engaging in? And so one of the, the strongest way we can do evangelism is in the way we live our lives. And in the way we live our lives, that then opens up a, a space to have a conversation about who Christ is. Evangelism is not necessarily always about going out and speaking. Evangelism also plays out in the way that you live. Um, and that's what Peter is telling them. Live out your life as people of God and then always be ready to have an answer to that hope you have when you do have that opportunity to talk about it. Um, Elizabeth Elliot, she was a Christian author and speaker, um, a missionary. She's considered to be one of the most influential uh, women in ministry in the 20th century. Her and her husband, Jim Elliot, were called to do missionary work in Ecuador, and her husband specifically wanted to reach an Indian tribe there, um, an unreached group that no one, uh, no one was ever known to meet without actually getting killed. So they were this kind of violent group, dangerous group. But Jim felt the burden of uh, preaching the gospel to them because he, he, no matter who they were and how they lived, he believed that even they um, are people who are meant to know and hear the gospel and receive the good news. And so he ends up going with four other missionaries to reach out to this Indian tribe, and they end up getting speared to death um, and leaving Elizabeth and their baby daughter behind. Um, and that, while his... Um, hard to want to even reach out to these people knowing that his life was on the line was in itself a huge um, display of, um, the, of the outworking of the power of the spirit in you to want to reach out to people. Elizabeth's response is actually just as stunning. She continues to minister to that tribe that murdered her husband. And in ministering to that Indian tribe, she begins to then understand what went wrong that fateful day. And she... Um, is actually, be, she is able to forgive them. She says, they were just trying to preserve their own way of life, their own liberty. Uh, they believed the foreigners were a threat to their liberty, and so they felt they had every right to kill them. In America, we decorate a man for defending his country. And then she also went on to say, the prayers of the widows of the missionaries that were killed um, are for, is for this tribe. We look forward to the day when these savages will join us in Christian praise. The way that she responded to what happened to her husband and her ability to forgive such an act is stunning, and it, it's, it stunned Christians and non-Christians alike. Where did, how was she able to do that? And it was actually in knowing complete love and forgiveness in Christ that gave her the power through the Holy Spirit to forgive those that shattered her life because she believed there was no one that could not be made new again in Christ. Her testimony um, is a testament to the power of love and forgiveness found in Christ. And I'm going to invite the worship team back up here uh, real quick as I'm ready to close. Um, that last part of the verse, but do this with gentleness and respect. Our approach um, in spreading this message is always in love, without compromising the truth and integrity of the message of the gospel. The point is not to win debates. The point is not to say, you know, we have, we're right, you're wrong. That's not it. We're here to say, Jesus walked on this earth. He died. He rose again for you. He loves you, and he came to save you as well. There is hope to be found in him, and you are also, um, you also have access to that hope in him. 
But sometimes when we try to talk about our faith, we, we have a tendency to downplay the message, right? Um, just to, for the sake of keeping peace and not getting into those awkward arguments and talks. Um, but in trying to spread the message of the gospel, we can't downplay the truth and the actual message of the gospel, which is Jesus is the only way, right? Acts 4.12 says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. We don't evangelize to win religious debates. This is not a who has a better way to salvation fight. This is not a contest on which religion is morally better or more fulfilling. No, this is about a person. This is about Jesus, who lived and died, rose again to reconcile this world um, to God. And this is the truth we believe. It's not just what helps us go to sleep at night. This is truth, right? This is this happened, and we are now messengers of this good message of this good message of this gospel to the world around us. And so the question that I leave you with is, have I had my own encounter with Christ? Has this truth of the gospel transformed my life? Can I say for sure I have encountered this love and mercy and grace, that I'm no longer the same? Do I believe God because it's what I've been taught all my life, or do I believe it to be true? The good news of the kingdom and reconciliation of God is for everyone, from God, through Christ, and now through us. And so I go back to the first point that I made in the beginning. Evangelists are not pre-qualified, extraordinary men. Evangelists are ordinary, unqualified people who, after encountering Jesus, God qualifies to do and speak extraordinary things through the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. We are here to spread the message of the gospel in after knowing God and encountering Jesus for ourselves, to lead people to the Savior of our souls, Jesus Christ.